7. This morning's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 to chapter 8, verse 17. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is being is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has saw repeatedly. But I have not found. One man among a thousand I found. But a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Keep the king's command. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is, no, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Those who fear God will do well. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. 
Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Man cannot know God's ways. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are people, there are wicked people, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for a man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth. How neither day, how neither day nor, nor night, do one's eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God. The man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in his seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Well, as we con- continue to make our way through Ecclesiastes, Uh, Solomon presses us to consider this. Consider the work of God, he says in chapter 7, verse 13, at the beginning of our passage. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We all want the world to be what we want the world to be. We want it to be that when good people do good things, good things happen to us. And when bad people do bad things, that bad things would happen to them. And of course, when we ourselves do bad things, we want uh, grace. We want kindness. So we want this kind of cosmic karma to work, but always to work in our favor, right? Good people get good things, bad people get bad things, but then when we do bad things ourselves, we want grace. And more specific to Christians, we want following God to result in good things for us, to to result in maybe a guaranteed safety or security, guaranteed prosperity. And then often find ourselves confused when bad things happen to us, Uh, to us when we're just doing our best to serve the Lord, when bad things happen to good people around us, Um, or when good things happen to bad people. That too can be confusing in its own way. And Solomon says, don't be surprised. Uh, Don't be so surprised when the world doesn't work out in ways that we would expect. Uh, The world uh, is not something that we can get a grasp on, as we've seen. It's inscrutable. We can't figure it out. Consider the work of God, he says. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And he goes on, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is an unsettling concept that I don't think any of us really wants to hear or acknowledge. Um, Of course, we can all gladly say that the good days that we receive are from the Lord, peace and prosperity from his hand. But what what about the day of adversity, the day of war and natural disaster? What about the day of conflict and opposition? What about your day of relational or marital conflict, misunderstandings, parental failures? What about those days? 
in the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity, consider God has made them both, the one as well as the other. Now, we should be clear here. This is not to say that God is the author of evil. That's clear throughout the scriptures. But it is to say that God is the ultimate author of the whole world, which is a world where evil certainly charts its course. And more than that, that God, it's God who created the world this way. He made the world in a way that when people turn from him to go our own way, evil, pain, misery, death are the natural byproduct. And God, God has made it this way. He's made the one as well as the other. And to press this further, the Christian scriptures will not allow for a simplistic view of God, any more simple than what Solomon's outlining for us here, which might suggest that God has nothing to do with our suffering. But instead, we find even here that he has everything to do with it. And this is what we find throughout the scriptures. Again, it's God, after all, who meets out the curse to Adam and Eve when they first turn from him. It's God who judges evil and injustice, both in our lives and throughout human history. It's God who wills that humans, all of us, feel in our lives, in our bodies, in our cultures, the weight of sin and alienation from God. It's God. The day of prosperity, the day of adversity, in some mysterious way, God has made them both, the one as well as the other. And obviously this raises a thousand questions about justice and the nature and seriousness of our sin and our alienation from God and the goodness of God and the depravity of humanity and on and on. But the point here is that, along with Solomon, we need to be wise in how we understand the dynamics of our world. Or perhaps better, we need to be wise in seeing our own limitations in understanding these things. That we cannot know, is how Solomon concludes at the end of our passage. We cannot know. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Here's the point. If your theology has led you to a safe and certain place in relation to God and God's ways, you've got the wrong theology. God is not safe. He's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. If your theology has given you a grip on this world, you've got the wrong theology. The world, uh, the way of this world is vaporous, ungraspable. He will not allow us to have some kind of a stance over the world where we can judge all things and understand how things are all working together. That's not our place as his finite creatures. Uh, I was taking down a balloon at my niece's uh, birthday party recently. It was wrapped around a tree. Uh, and as I was trying to pull apart the, the, the thread that was holding it onto the tree, my hand slipped and I got a good piece of bark lodged under my fingernail and there was blood and it was painful and I thought what's the point why like why this pain now I'm gonna have to wait to go home and get tweezers or something to to figure this out why why this needless pain in my life um and obviously it's a stupid question in, in comparison with with um with the far greater uh, chaos and pain that we find all around ourselves when we consider uh, our own history here in this country of residential schools, etc., when we consider what's happening now in Afghanistan. Who can understand these things? Solomon presses us to ask. Who can understand these things? None of us can. Uh, 
And wisdom admits this, that life is not easily figured out, that, as Solomon puts it in verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. We find that good people die unexpectedly, that all kinds of bad happens to righteous people, that bad people live and prosper against what we think is fair. And how do we respond to this? So this is the question that we'll center the rest of our time on. How do we respond to these dynamics of life, these vaporous dynamics of life? Do we throw up our hands and say, who cares? God gives, uh, God gives us over uh, to bad things even when we do good. And so why not just go ahead and do evil? Why, why not just give ourselves over to the evil that we want to do? Maybe that's the way to respond. Or maybe, on the other hand, we double down and we try really hard to overcome this mystery by being really good, by being really righteous in order to guarantee the favor of God. Maybe if we pray enough or show ourselves to be, uh, to love God enough and love our neighbor, maybe then things will go well for us and we can kind of guarantee a secure future. Now, um, as you've already guessed, Solomon, to both of these options, says no. Instead, there is a way to navigate through this vaporous life for joy, but it's neither of those routes. Instead, there's a wise and a better way, which leads to joy, and it's this. Don't be overly righteous, he says, and don't be overly wicked, on the other hand, and instead be wise in the fear of the Lord. Here's what he says in verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So first, we'll consider the first of these. Be not overly righteous. Now, this is not to say that a person shouldn't try to be righteous. We should. But instead, what Solomon's warning against here is a false righteousness, an over-dependence on one's own rightness or righteousness, a commitment to being so righteous that it ends up blinding a person from seeing their own sin. It's called being pretentious, a sin that many in the church know well, even if we don't want to admit it. I think of when I first got married, I was, or I thought of myself as the, the good guy. You know, I was a good guy, a faithful, committed Christian. I'd come from a solid Christian home. I'd committed myself to regular patterns of Bible reading and of prayer, accountability for sin, regular Christian fellowship, all of it, uh, which all made me very much ready for marriage, right? Uh, didn't it? Uh, I, was, I was the ideal Christian spouse, or, or so I thought. And as my wife began to raise concerns about me, about my priorities, about how, how I was spending my time, my deeper heart motivations for why I was doing the things that I was doing. Uh, I was sure that in my own desire to be righteous, I was sure that the problem couldn't really be with me. You know, I was somebody who was honest about my sin and, um, and was doing my best to live in the Christian life. And so it, it must have to do with her. It had to, be with, to do with her own insecurities or unrealistic expectations or misunderstanding of the Christian life or of Christian marriage. I was righteous after all. And I needed to be. I needed that. Uh, now, um, don't get me wrong. I, I didn't actually think I was perfect. But I did think that I had a pretty good handle on my own sinfulness at the time. Um, which ended up being a means of blindness to my own sinfulness. And it seems that in hindsight, 
I was so committed to being a good Christian, to maintaining that identity of being a good Christian and a good husband to my wife, a good friend to others, um, that I developed this serious blindness, a real inability to recognize certain failures in my own life as failures. I didn't want to see that all of these kind and gracious actions towards others were often selfishly motivated. I, I didn't want to see that I'd been loving or prioritizing other things over my wife. Overly righteous. Trusting in my own righteousness, wanting to be the good guy, and all of this in a way blinding me to my own sin. It is pretentious, and it doesn't honor, honor God and it leads to destruction. Solomon says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? You see, the way of wisdom is not to pretend that we're better than we are, which is our temptation, or to act as though we don't need to be corrected or forgiven. That's not wisdom. But instead, we are to name things as they are, to see ourselves as we are. And it's as we see and acknowledge both to God and to one another, that we aren't as righteous as we wish we were, that we can find ourselves forgiven, accepted as we are for all the faults that we bring to the table, acknowledging our imperfections. And in this way, uh, the Lord brought me, us, in our marriage to a beautiful place, only through this way, through admitting my own weakness, our own weaknesses to each other, to seeing that the point was not about being perfect, having a false righteousness, but about being forgiven, right? acknowledging our imperfections and being able to receive each other as we are. And perhaps there's somebody listening who needs to do the same. And perhaps that's you. Um, to admit your wrongs, even to a loved one, to a neighbor. To admit that you're not as loving as you wish you were. To admit that you're far more selfish than you'd like to admit. And then to ask to be forgiven. And this too is God's invitation to all of us this morning to admit that we too are sinners, that we've wronged him, we've gone our own way. And in that way, to name things as they are, to name sin as it is, and in that way to find ourselves received by our God and forgiven. Be not overly righteous. Solomon goes on with a few practical pieces of wisdom on this point that I'll just uh, point out briefly in verses 21 and 22 he says do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others and there's a healthy matter of factness about this that people will speak poorly of you of us and let's be honest that we do the same of others okay we've all got our thoughts about each other even in this church right so and so is too careful or so-and-so is too wordy or doesn't talk enough or is too worried about the virus. How about that one? Or not worried enough about the virus. Right? We, we all have our, our thoughts, our private opinions. And what Solomon says is don't take it to heart. You two have the same. Now I should say that this is not permission to be unwise or to be judgmental about any of these issues. Okay, let's be clear. But it is a call to be realistic about the kinds of people we are, right? and therefore the kinds of people that we're surrounded by. Don't take it to heart, Solomon says. Neither is this an excuse to not rebuke those who offend us. Right? Instead, the point is, 
as you do so, right, as you find yourself offended or people speaking poorly of you and you address this, recognize the way that these things play out in your own heart, right? We too make judgments of others. To conclude this section, the overly righteous life is the life of blindness to one's own sins, as I've called it, the life of pretense. Give it up, says Solomon. Your own rightness, your own righteousness will not lead to life, but only to your own destruction. Second, be not overly wicked. And we'll move a little more quickly here. Uh, Follow along, you can follow along in verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Or a little earlier, Solomon says in verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, because he does not fear God, because he does not fear before God. On the one hand, Solomon is saying, being overly wicked can quicken a person's death. We all know this, right? Living um, a wild life can bring upon an early death. And at the same time, Solomon observes, this is not always so. Bad people can do bad things and live a long time, and in many ways, a long and prosperous life. But either way, Solomon says, it will not be well with the wicked. Whether the wicked shortens their life or prolongs their life, it will not be well. Why? Because he does not fear before God. The problem here is not that there are some who do really bad things and persist in doing really bad things or that and that others do smaller bad things. That's not the division that's in Solomon's mind, but that those who persist in doing bad do not fear God. Okay, we can think about the prostitutes uh, and tax collectors on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other in Jesus' own ministry, right? He talks about how the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees. It's not that some are doing really big, blatant things, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and some doing small things, uh, uh, the Pharisees who seem seem to simply be arrogant, but it's that one of these groups doesn't fear the Lord. The question isn't how bad you are, okay, how bad the things are that you've done, but whether or not you fear God. You can live a very good life, right? doing a lot of the right things as far as society is concerned, but not fear God, and you will be in a bad place in relation to God. Those who do wrong without the fear of God, their end is destruction. There's no hope we find here. They may prolong their life on earth, but still their end will be death, eternal destruction. Things may go well for them. Things may seem to go well for the wicked. Over and over again in your life, you may look at others who are doing wrong and things are going well for them. And actually, for many of us, we will never, even in our own wrongdoing, many of us will never experience any of the results of our rejection of God until it's too late. We'll think all is well because good things are happening. And Solomon says, beware, it's vapor, it's meaningless. And in the end, you will reap what you sow. And only those who fear the Lord, only for those who fear the Lord will find that all will be well because they fear before him. Do you fear God? Is the question. And if so, we find you'll avoid these pitfalls. Don't be overly righteous, blind to your own sin unwilling to admit your own sinfulness. And don't be overly wicked, shunning the fear of God, living life as you please. Instead, 
Walk in the way of wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. To this point, we've seen that the fear of God corrects two false ways of living. Being overly righteous on the one hand and being overly wicked on the other. And we've seen that the way of wisdom and the fear of God offers a better way. In the fear of God, we name things as they are. We don't pretend all is well when all is not well. Neither do we expect that righteousness results in immediate reward or that wickedness results in immediate punishment. We recognize the complexity of existence under the sun and instead acknowledge we don't know. We admit our limitations in being righteous. We admit that we too sin and do wrong. And it's here in the fear of the Lord. Okay, recognizing these things. Submitting ourselves to life under the sun as God has made it. Not trying to make straight what God has made crooked. It's here in the fear of the Lord where joy is commended. Look with me at verse uh, 15 of chapter 8. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Nothing better but to eat and drink, and be joyful. How about it? This is what wisdom offers us. No promise of security. No promise that tomorrow will go well if we do right today. No promise that being good or being religious will get us prosperity or long life, but instead an invitation to eat and drink and be joyful with all that the Lord has in fact given us now in the present. We all want this kind of a simple joy, don't we? To be able to eat and drink and be joyful in the Lord, as Solomon says. But the way to joy is not in religious pretense. The way to joy is not in perversity and godless pleasure-seeking. Instead, we find the way to joy is living life in the fear of the Lord, walking in His ways, and enjoying every gift that comes from the hand of God. Do you believe it? Now, uh, before we end, we need to ask briefly, who can do this? Who of us can be so wise as to find joy in our daily living with the gifts that God has given us? Not thinking too highly of ourselves, not being overly wicked on the other hand. Who can do this? Well, not me. Not me. Every day, I find myself erring on one side or the other, and probably both sides, blind to my own sin trying to find joy in all the wrong ways. And the good news for me and for all of us this morning is that Jesus Christ has walked this road before us and for us. He wasn't overly righteous, but perfectly righteous. As a man, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He didn't use his righteousness as a means of superiority over others, as we tend to do. But he knew who he was as a man, even with his own limitations, and trusting himself to God. And neither was he overly wicked. And in fact, he wasn't wicked at all. No darkness in him at all. He only ever lived in the fear of the Lord. And avoiding these two pitfalls, he pursued the joy set before him and calls us to do the same. To pursue joy, he says. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Feast with your friends, party with your people, eat, drink, and be joyful, because at least in part, this is what you were made for. And Jesus leads the way 
into this path of joy and peace, which is why all of human history culminates in a meal. The Bible calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. The kingdom of God, we find, is a great banquet consisting of eating and drinking to our heart's content. And the kingdom of darkness, hell itself, is articulated as being shut out of the great banquet, unable to eat, drink, and be merry. We are perverse. We're full of pretense, all of us. And Jesus, we find in the gospel, has offered his life for us, given himself for us, that we might be forgiven and that we might eat, drink, and be joyful in this life and in the life to come. He invites us to feed on himself. He is the bread of life. And he offers his body for us and his blood that we might be forgiven, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you come and feast on him today? Receive him as he is, as he offers himself in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning, asking that you would make us what you desire to make us, that we would be a people who submits to your ways, who doesn't desire to make straight what you've made crooked, who recognizes the vaporousness of this life, who don't seek to make things well by, by pursuing our own righteousness, by being overly righteous, or by going our own way down the path of wickedness. But make us a people who fear you, who fear you rightly, and in, your, in the fear of you, that we would be a people who, uh, to whom joy is commended, that we would be able to enjoy every gift as from your hand. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.